This educational activity is supported by independent educational grants from Astellas, Merck, and Seattle Genetics. Thank you for joining us today at Live from AUA 2019 in Chicago to talk about the management of advanced and metastatic urothelial carcinoma. My name is Dr. Kristen Scarpato. I'm a urologic oncologist and assistant professor of urology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I am here today with Ann Calvaresi. She's a doctor of nursing practice. Dr. Calvaresi is a urologic oncology nurse practitioner at Thomas Jefferson University. She has worked as an outpatient urologic nurse practitioner since 2012, focusing primarily on oncologic disease, including diagnoses, treatment, follow-up care, and quality of life. I am also joined by Dr. Sia Danishman, an associate professor of urology, director of urologic oncology, director of clinical research and urologic oncology, fellowship director at the University of Southern California, Norris Comprehensive Cancer Center. He has also served on the AUA SUO guideline committee of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. And finally, Dr. Anthony Wong uh, from the University of California at San Francisco. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Radiation Oncology, and he specializes in genital urinary malignancies. So welcome, Dr. Calvaresi, Dr. Danishman, and Dr. Wong. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. We, we know that bladder cancer is expected to impact over 80,000 patients with new diagnoses this year, and that over 17,000 patients will die from bladder cancer. It is the sixth most common cause of cancer in the U.S., and importantly, it's diagnosed in patients who are older. The median age of diagnosis is 73 years, and so we know that in terms of treatment, that has a significant impact. Um, the majority of bladder cancer initially is non-muscle invasive at the time of diagnosis, but about 25% of cancers are muscle invasive, and about 4% of patients have metastatic disease at presentation. The majority of bladder cancer originates actually in the bladder, urothelial cancer, but about 10% of urothelial cancers will come from the upper tract, so the kidneys or the ureter. Um, we know that there's a significant impact and that patients um, tend to uh, progress and require advanced treatment. So we're gonna talk about that today, both uh, muscle invasive disease and uh, metastatic and advanced disease. So Dr. Dunishman, I'm gonna start with you. Okay. Say a 75-year-old patient is referred to you with muscle invasive bladder cancer from an outside institution. Um, what is your initial workup of a patient like this? He's relatively healthy. Okay, so yeah, I mean, uh, looking at the uh, um, uh, he overall health of the patient, comorbidity is very, very important in s deciding what you're gonna do, uh, especially with a 75-year-old uh, gentleman. Uh, if he's otherwise healthy and uh, doesn't have any comorbidities, I presume has normal renal mm -hmm. function yes. and has muscle invasive disease. One of the things we do, I'm sure you do at your center as well, is, is ascertain the diagnosis, make sure that this is uh, exactly what we're dealing with. So a re-review of the slides if it's coming from uh, outside. And uh, on occasion, you do find things that will change your management. You can have variant histologies, uh, small cell carcinoma, for instance, rare, but it does happen where it, it does change your management. So uh, that's sort of the first step, imaging. Uh, make sure that you have adequate imaging. A lot of times patients don't come in with chest imaging. It's very, very important to uh, um, uh, assess their chest, not just for metastases, but also degree of emphysema and see um, you know, what kind of surgical risk this patient's gonna be just based on uh, imaging alone. So, and making sure that your imaging is up to date. You know, a lot of times they have had their CT scan done six months ago, and I don't think that's uh, really adequate for, for the patient. So that's sort of the first step. Do you re-resect? Good question. For muscle invasive disease that's proven, I don't. 
I don't think there's any additive benefit to it. I know some do for tissue, for research, for potential improvement in, in uh, outcomes, but I, I don't. I don't. See I know it. we debate that all the time at Vanderbilt. Do you try and achieve a complete resection on TURBT before heading to cystectomy, or do you get your diagnosis and then proceed with neoadjuvant or cystectomy? Right. I, I, I don't think the data is really strong either way. Obviously, no randomized trials, but uh, even in retrospective studies, yes, some series show a complete resection has been associated with with better outcomes, but but that's probably because those are the patients who are selected and, and had smaller tumors to begin with rather than you're actually achieving or trying to achieve a clinical T0 before going to cystectomy. I think it's more important, that I'm sure you'll talk about it in, in radiation therapy where you are trying to achieve sort of maximal debulking uh, in this patient. So, so, so moving on down the uh, path of treatment for this patient, let's say we've already read the pathology slides and we've done our imaging, we start to have a discussion about uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy as an option. Obviously level one data and uh, recommended by the AUA guidelines and uh, we would discuss uh, uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy providing the survival benefit five to six percent um, uh, for the patient. Um, we also look at risk factors. Uh, so uh, us, uh, we, we, we've done studies uh, along with MD Anderson showing that, and, and others as well, that uh, show that some patients are at higher risk uh, than others uh, and it, within the muscle invasive group. And, and perhaps uh, in those patients, uh, uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy should be sort of used uh, uh, more um, often than, than those who don't have risk factors. And those are variant histology, clinical T3 disease, prostatic urethral involvement, hydronephrosis, uh, uh, or any sort of palpable mass on, on, on physical examination. Uh, provided the patient does not have any of those risk factors, you're still at about at least the 30% risk of upstaging. We still recommend neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So uh, that would be a discussion with our um, medical oncologist, and I would make an appointment for them to see them to, to discuss cisplatin-based chemotherapy. It has to be cisplatin, and if, if their creatinine does not allow, their EGFR does not allow it, it stops basically right there, except we do have clinical trials. Okay. Long-winded answer, I'm sorry. But. Yeah, no, no problem. <laughs> One thing that you did bring up that I want to just make sure everyone was, is aware of is that there are muscle invasive bladder cancer guidelines put forth by the AUA in 2017 in addition to the NCCN guidelines. And they're pretty explicit about the workup and the management exactly. of these patients, which is very helpful. Right. So this patient is referred to a medical oncologist for neoadjuvant chemotherapy. What, we alluded to it a little bit before, but what are we currently using? So currently we're using a cisplatin-based chemotherapy regimen, um, gemcitabine with cisplatin or dose-dense MVAC. Um, for patients who are cisplatin uh, ineligible, usually we'll recommend that they go on towards uh, cystectomy. So, you know, there's a lot of data out there about the amount of uh, patients who actually go on to receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And so even though there's level one evidence and we have that five to six percent uh, benefit at five years, only about 20% of patients are actually receiving uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy prior to cystectomy. Um, actually, also sort of surprising is that um, only about 50% of the patients who have muscle invasive bladder cancer are actually receiving definitive therapy with either trimodal therapy or with um, radical cystectomy. So we definitely have a, a long way to go there. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. Dr. Danishman says cisplatin chemotherapy, that's it, nothing else neoadjuvant. But is there anything else that we can use patients in the neoadjuvant setting? Well, we know from the PURE study that uh, pembrolizumab used as a, a neoadjuvant treatment uh, led to complete response, or T0 disease, in about 40% of patients post-cystectomy. So 
that, that's very promising. Promising. And we're going to talk a lot about immunotherapy today, and um, we'll see it in a variety of different settings. But newer data is uh, coming out, and hopefully we will have other options in the uh, neoadjuvant space. Um, I think part of the reason that patients don't go on to receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy is that, again, they're in their 70s or 80s, they have poor performance status, they don't have great renal function, and um, they, they just aren't good candidates for it. And we'll talk a little bit about adjuvant afterwards, but after cystectomy, many of them aren't great candidates either. So this patient does great, gets neoadjuvant chemotherapy, comes back to see you. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, preoperative optimization. We heard in the last session uh, from Dr. Chad Rich about the importance of nutrition, and he just published a study on um, nutritional supplementation, improving outcomes for cystectomy. I know that you have a lot to say about ERAS, so tell us from your session uh, at the SUO uh, where we stand with ERAS and what you recommend. Sure. Uh, I actually came back from the World Congress of ERAS uh, just before the AUA meeting in, in Liverpool, a great meeting where we discussed a lot of these issues, not just within our specialty, but, but also uh, all surgical specialties, including anesthesia. Uh, ERAS has been around in various forms for over 10 years now, uh, really 11, 12 years. Uh, there, and, and the definition of ERS is, is, is really rather vague. It's uh, enhanced recovery after surgery, but really includes a lot of preoperative and prehabilitation components. Uh, we're in the phase of gathering data to see whether any of these um, kind of make a difference. One of the things I learned from the conference, for instance, was in, 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 cardi in uh, thoracic surgery, uh, lung rehab and any form of rehab really helps perioperative outcomes. And I thought it was very interesting. And I, I don't know that we have that data yet in urology. I know uh, people like Jeff Montgomery and the University of Michigan and are doing studies, and, and uh, but we still don't have definitive data whether we can reverse to some degree the decades of, of um, sort of damage that's been done to the body through smoking and through hypertension, diabetes, and all those things that affect uh, uh, bodily functions. Nevertheless, I think there's absolutely an opportunity to optimize the patient, right? And uh, the uh, AUA website actually uh, uh, has great white paper on, on uh, uh, preoperative optimization of the patient that, of course, includes counseling, uh, uh, smoking cessation, um, and that has been shown in multiple different surgical principles to improve outcomes. Um, weight loss to some degree, again, you can't reverse you know, uh, decades worth of uh, obesity and bad habits, however you can optimize nutrition, and like uh, Chad Richard showed uh, with uh, immune uh, uh, drinks, immune modulatory drinks, there's a new uh, SWOG trial that will be examining this, uh, the SWOG S1600, Joe Hamilton Reese from KU is gonna be uh, uh, leading that trial with Jeff Holzverlein, so we're excited to have a randomized trial in that, in that setting. Uh, so currently what we're doing is we are having patients see a nutritionist. Um, if they're obese, then we do try to have a 5%, 10% sort of goal uh, to reach for, for um, it's a goal, we try um, to, to get them to lose some weight. But losing, it's not really focused on losing weight, but eating the right uh, diet. And also they do uh, sort of move into what to do post-operatively to continue. Because what happens post-op, of course, the appetite goes down, protein losses, and, and you have protein malnutrition. And I think we need to focus also on post-operative nutrition because a lot of the healing, infectious complications and things come from uh, the massive sort of catabolic state that they go in post-nutrition. -post so 
Um, you know, so, so for us, there's that pre sort of surgery component. There's an intraoperative ERAS component where the anesthesiologists and their team are, are implementing various, you know, goal-directed fluid therapies and, and uh, optimal uh, management of pain intraoperatively, uh, opioid sparing or opioid, uh, uh, you know, optimi optimized or however you want to call it, um, uh, uh, strategies to, to uh, minimize the amount of opioids intra-op. And of course, the major component of ERAS, as the name implies, is after surgery. And you know, people ask us, and, and uh, Dr. Parekh, uh, was who was I was debating, was was quite comical in his uh, um, you know uh, uh, description of the various ERAS protocols that are out there. There's so many components to it, but really, if you distill it down to the main components, I think uh, is uh, one is not having the patient NPO for too long before surgery. Uh, our patients eat regular diet all the way up to, to um, midnight or NPO after midnight. Uh, there's now a push to have patients actually drink right before surgery, two hours prior. Um, no NG tubes, or if you do have an NG or an OG tube, to take it out prior to, uh, uh, prior to uh, extubation. Uh, early feeding, early ambulation, no bowel prep. Um, and by early feeding, uh, you know, that's a vague term as well. Uh, we at our center start clear liquids on the night of surgery, regular diet on day one. And again, this is in conjunction with, with our nutrition department to optimize uh, what foods are easily digestible. It is a regular diet. They're getting eggs and toast and coffee and it's, it's, it's nice. Um, and, and so no NG tube, early ambulation. and. Those are, I think, the, the, the main components of, of what we call ERAS. The rest of it, uh, out, whether you use alvimapan, a little bit of neostigmine, and um, things like that, and postoperative immune modulating drinks, that's sort of other components to it as well. Great. So we're going to optimize this patient. You're going to move on to cystectomy with him, and he's in your office and you're counseling him. Talk about robotic versus uh, open approach and how you counsel him and what you choose. Okay, yeah, it's a great question and of course a, a topic of, of debate, um, uh, a continued topic of debate. I honestly don't think there's much of a difference. I think it's a tool. You know, we do surgeries differently. We use Mayo scissors, you use Mets. I think that's, that's how you should think about this. If you're comfortable, that's how you train. You do robotic surgery, you do that surgery well. Really adhering to the surgical principles is to me the more important aspects, doing an adequate lymph node dissection, uh, doing it efficiently, not taking 10 hours to do an operation in an elderly patient in Steve Trenellenberg. I don't think that's helping the patient. But if you do a good um, uh, uh, surgical technique, I think most of the data shows that uh, complication rates are similar, uh, readmission rates are similar, outcomes are similar, and fortunately now we have data, emerging data, that shows oncological outcomes are similar. Personally, I do open surgery uh, because it's faster for me, honestly, and, and uh, uh, it's through an infra-umbilical incision. Um, I think um, uh, the benefits of minimally invasive surgery uh, that we see in partial nephrectomies and prostatectomies even uh, are not quite realized in, in cystectomies. Having said that, I think they are uh, oncologically equivalent. I think outcomes are very, very similar. But length of stay, as we showed yesterday, for, for us in open surgery is four days and, and in the same center, you know, doing same surgery for, for enhanced, with enhanced recovery, robotic surgery has not shown an improvement in that sort of length of stay. And I think one of the things that you're getting at that's very important is that surgeon comfort and surgeon preference are sort of a, a big player in making that decision. If you're someone who does a lot of robotic surgery and you feel better about doing it robotically, exactly. great. 
otherwise open. Um, so let's say that this patient was in fact a 75-year-old female instead of a 75-year-old male. I know there's been a lot of discussion about sex-bearing radical cystectomy. Um, what is your thought on that? Yeah, uh, and we published on this a few years ago about the uh, organ involvement, uh, sexual organ involvement in, in females. It's actually really low, with the anterior vagina being the, the number one uh, sort of female sexual organ that's involved. And that's because of the location of the tumor, of course. But looking at the uterus and fallopian tubes and ovaries, uh, the involvement is minuscule. Of course, you should see that in, 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 uh, uh, on the CT scan or imaging. So I think in the younger patient, that is going to be sexually active. There's something to be said about sexual uh, organ preserving cystectomy. Uh, there's support there that, that you lose afterwards. Uh, you have things like vaginal prolapse and loss of uh, lubrication and loss of length and all that stuff. I think it's very important to do a preoperative assessment and ask the patients about their sexual health. You know, we don't have good questionnaires. We have shim scores we hand out in, in uh, uh, the clinic, but we don't have it for fem Well, maybe we do at night. <laughs> I don't have it in my clinic. Uh, we should be doing a better job assessing that. But in a 75-year-old who is not sexually active, um, who really uh, um, the benefit of the tiny amounts of estrogen that are produced by the ovaries, I'm, I'm not sure is worthwhile uh, necessarily doing an organ preserving surgery. I actually find it easier to do an anterior pelvic exoneration in, in women. Uh, it's more difficult to do organ preservation. The, the number one, I think the key factor that you should take away uh, is to do not do an organ pr preservation if there is any concern, any concern about having posterior uh, uh, tumor. Because a positive margin in this patient population, uh, despite what you're going to tell us about adjuvant radiation, is really a death sentence. And I think uh, you should not compromise the operation for the potential benefit that you see in organ preservation. So. He says, you know what, what are the other options? I'm not sure that I really want to go through with a major surgery like that. I'm concerned about quality of life, et cetera. And you refer him to Dr. Wong for trimodal therapy. So let's talk a little bit about pr bladder preservation and trimodal therapy. First of all, what is the rationale for it? Uh, well, so the rationale is the organ you're born with. It's probably the one that gets you the best quality of life. Um, and, you know, if we're not compromising oncologic outcomes and survival, um, you know, why, why not offer them uh, organ-preserving uh, approach. Um, we do it for plenty of other malignancies like head and neck cancer, larynx preservation, um, and you know, I, I think that uh, I think that it's a it's it's a curative option uh, for patients who might otherwise, uh, as you brought up earlier in this session, you know, 50% of patients in some patterns of care studies are not receiving any kind of aggressive therapy. Um, some of them just observation alone. So there's a uh, NCDB National Cancer Database analysis published some years ago um, that basically showed, you know, 20, 25% of patients are just getting observation. Um, and, you know, maybe fewer than 10% are getting trimodality therapy. Um, you know, trimodality therapy is now a, a category one recommendation in NCC, NCCN for uh, T2, T3, and T4 bladder cancers. Also um, the AUA guidelines as yeah. an option for these patients. Right, right. So, um, so I think it's, you know, I think it's an overlooked modality that we really should be offering to a, a large segment that's, you know, has unmet need. Um, and, that we could be curing a lot more patients with it. So who shouldn't we offer it to? Uh, so um, I try to, so the optimal patient for trimodality therapy is one who has a unifocal smaller tumor. Um, there isn't perhaps a, a hard size cutoff, but some of the data suggests less than five centimeter tumor um, that is completely resected and doesn't have uh, extensive carcinoma in situ or hydronephrosis. Um, now it's hard to, you know, 
uh, optimally select those patients. A lot of times, you know, someone will come to you who's, who's medically inoperable, who has hydronephrosis and carcinoma in situ, and I'm not going to, you know, not offer them therapy based on that alone. Um, but um, you know, if, if if you can select a patient, that's probably the patient who has the best outcome, one who has a smaller tumor that's unifocal, um, doesn't have associated hydronephrosis or or carcinoma in situ. Um, and I, I do think that um, I do think you know maximal complete resection is extremely important. Um, you know, I generally try to get these patients on treatment within six weeks of their transurethral resection. Um, so if someone is coming from the outside and, and they were resected, you know, several weeks or you know even months ago, um, I would definitely ask for a second resection, uh, you know, before starting therapy. I went to a great session at this AUA put put on by the um, folks from Mass General, Dr. Feldman and all, talking about trimodal therapy, and they obviously have an extensive experience yes. with it. And one of the things that they really hammered home at is that this is still very much a surgical disease. Right. So even though it's bladder preservation, um, you still need to do uh, surgical resection on a fairly regular basis, and uh, in addition yeah. to the other therapy. Yeah, I mean, I I don't view it as just you know, I mean, it really is trimodality therapy, chemotherapy, radiation, and, and surgeries. You know, uh, close close follow up with cystoscopy is, is essential for this approach. Um, so, so what are um, the chemotherapy uh -huh. agents? So let's say we do, you know, Dr. Danishman does an excellent complete resection. Uh, patient then goes on to get the chemotherapy and the radiation. So what are the radiosensitizing agents? Yeah, so at my institution, um, we, we tend to use uh, cisplatin-based chemotherapy, preferably cisplatin doublet, like cisplatin and uh, 5-fluorouracil. Um, it's cisplatin. Ineligible patients, there's level one evidence um, from the UK of using mitomycin and 5-FU. Um, and then in patients who we don't think can tolerate either of those uh, those agents, um, we will usually give uh, low-dose gemcitabine, weekly gemcitabine with hypofractionated radiation. Okay, and what is the radiation field? Um, yeah, that's up for some some debate. So there is a um, you know there is a randomized trial from Pakistan uh, looking at pelvic nodal elective pelvic nodal radiation in uh, urothelial carcinoma that really showed no advantage to elective um, pelvic treatment. Um, that being said, we do know um, from USC surgical series and uh, among others that. Um, you know, a lot of these patients do have occult nodal disease um, at time of resection, and it, you know, from a first principles point of view, it does it does seem kind of awkward not to treat disease where you, when you highly suspect it's going to be there. Um, so I think you know when patients are are receiving um, uh, you know cisplatin based therapy for, if they're fit, um, generally I will treat the elective pelvis to about 40 gray or so, um, and then I will uh, I, I do a sequential cone down technique where I'll treat the whole bladder to about 54 gray. Then I'll try to try to get the tumor bed to about uh, 60 to 60, 60, 60 to 66 gray, usually about 65 gray. Okay. So, so just to clarify, there is no um, one agreed upon chemotherapy regimen for these patients. There are a number of different regimens that have data in support of it. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. I think our our practice in the states is probably biased towards cisplatin, and I do think platinum is probably the most active agent we have against urothelial carcinoma. Um, so that, you know that makes sense, but. Um, but yeah, there are there are many options. Um, you know, for a patient who has you know poor renal function, a lot of comorbidities, um, low dose low dose weekly gemcitabine is very well tolerated, and I, I treated 80, 85 year old patients with this regimen, and, and they've gotten through it with uh, complete responses. Do you know if anyone is looking at uh, immunotherapy in trimodal management? Um, it's it's a clinical trial question. Yeah, there are actually a, a number of trials uh, going on now looking at. Um, you know, using immunotherapy and radiation. So we infer from other cancer sites um, that you know that there may be some synergistic effect between between radiation and immunotherapy. Um, you know, I I think that um, I think at this point it still should only be done in the context of a clinical trial. Um, so we do have early toxicity data from the Plum B trial. So this is a phase one 
um, experience uh, from, from the UK. And in their first five patients, there were three dose-limiting toxicities, including one grade four rectal perforation. Um, they were using hypofractionated radiation, so they're, they're giving 36 gray and 6 gray weekly fractions, um, which has been shown to be well tolerated in the absence of, of chemotherapy uh, in, in, a, in a French phase two trial. Um, so you know, we were, I think we were a bit surprised to see, um, see that level of toxicity. Um, but um, yes, I think it's a very interesting approach. Um, I think that's, you know, that's something that we will be probably doing in the future, but um, at this point, we're not doing an off-clinical trial. So getting back to the lymph nodes for a second, Dr. Danishman had alluded to before the importance of doing a thorough uh, lymph node dissection during radical cystectomy. And we know that it's diagnostic and it's therapeutic. And there's some debate about how, how many lymph nodes you should take and extended, super extended, et cetera. But there's no data, is that what you're saying, to support doing nodal There's no level one data to mm -hmm. argue um, for elective pelvic nodal radiation for bladder cancer. Um, okay. you know, in, in, in most of the uh, RTOG and US experience and, and the you know, mass general approach, we, we did treat the elective nodes. Um, so um, That has to be balanced against the toxicity of radiating that larger field. Right, right. Um, so again, you know, for fitter patients who are getting cisplatin, I, I usually will include the elective nodes. Um, for less fit patients um, who are getting gemcitabine, I will treat the, treat the bladder only with uh, hypofractionated radiation. And so can you talk us through some of the data in support of bladder preservation and what the outcomes are? Yeah, so you know, there are no successfully completed uh, randomized trials comparing surgery to radiation. Um, you know, I think that uh, our comfort with it really comes from um, the MGH experience, um, the, pooled R2G, uh, the pooled R2G experience, uh, and um, as well as uh, you know, the recent publication from, uh, from the Toronto group um, looking at, uh, looking at um, you know, propensity score matched outcomes between patients getting uh, a trimodality therapy or a radical, radical cystectomy. Um, you know, what, what those data show in general uh, are that our survival outcomes are, are pretty favorable, 50 to 60% um, in, in the randomized trial data, uh, you know, uh, at five years for overall survival. And it seems like we're doing better as time goes on. Uh, in you know, the updated uh, long-term MGH experience, um, you know, we're, we're seeing um, salvage cystectomy rates. Salvage cystectomy rates are going down over time. They're about 40% in the historic era um, from 1985 to 1995, about 20% from 1995 to 2005. And then in the modern era, we're down to about 10%. Um, and uh, that's also consistent with the randomized uh, trial data from BC 2001. Um, the salvage cystectomy rate uh, with chemo RT arm was, was, was 11%. Um, so I think, you know, I think we are seeing, um, you know, we, we are seeing favorable outcomes with, with this approach. Um, what I also counsel patients is that uh, in the pooled R2G experience, uh, even in patients who, who relapse after trimodality therapy, if they're followed closely um, by cystoscopy and we catch it, and, you know, and we're, up, we're at a center you know, where um, you know, surgeons are comfortable doing salvage cystectomy, um, survival average after salvage cystectomy in the RTG experience was 45% at five years, um, which frankly is not, not, not that bad. Um, so you know, in, in, in some sense, um, you know, they're not necessarily giving up a lot by, by choosing an organ preservation approach up front. Are the, are the data that are available, do they have patients who are cystectomy eligible and cystectomy ineligible patients that are combined, which may impact the outcomes? Um, I think that's very heavily, I think that's very heavily biased by referral patterns, to be honest. Um, you know, yeah, I, I don't know of a, of a good data set that, you know, in general, our referrals are patients who are not eligible for cystectomy, but, you know, depending on, uh, on level of comfort that from, you know, with your urologist and, uh, you know, we, we, we do, I, I do treat patients who are cystectomy candidates as well, so. 
And one, one consideration, too, that probably impacts the data is that we know that when we take bladders out, there's a significant degree of upstaging. And so we obviously don't get complete pathologic data when we're not taking out the bladder for patients who are undergoing bladder preservation. And so presumably some of them are actually T3 or T4, which may impact the outcomes. Right. Okay. So not everyone um, is a success story with uh, trimodality therapy, and they're referred back to the urologist for salvage cystectomy. Uh, do you have experience with salvage cystectomy and any recommendations? Uh, we do, we do definitely. Um, and uh, we published a paper a, a while ago with Isla Skinner um, uh, showing that complication rates overall are higher in patients receiving any pelvic radiation. Most of those were prostate, which I think is very different um, uh, than radiation for bladder. So uh, zooming in on the, on the bladder ones, uh, not a lot of salvage cystectomies are done. I'm not sure why that is. Uh, part, partly it's because most of them are treated outside of our institution. But the ones that we have done, I would say, is highly variable. Uh, I have ones where I go in there as, as if nothing has happened in the pelvis, and others where it's you know your usual prostate sort of heavy, extensive uh, um, uh, uh, fibrosis. I think that the biggest uh, question really here is that of the diversion, because we'll get through it, right? It's going to be a more difficult case, obviously, uh, but you know, can you do an orthostopic diversion in a patient who's uh, had a had, is at prior radiation therapy? In the past, it used to be no. In the MGH series, 98% of the patients got um, uh, received an ileal conduit, so patients are naturally sort of drawn, and they are older in general, so less of a conversation. However, we have done orthotopic diversions in patients with prior um, radiation for, for bladder, and they have done quite well. And I think that so long as if we can talk to the radiation oncologist and ask them what their fields were, if the bladder tumor, like you said, you, you're uh, focusing at the, at the end on, on zoom, uh, coning in on, on the bladder tumor itself, if it's far away from the urethral sphincter, really there should be no reason why we can't do an orthotopic diversion. However, so closer to the bladder neck, uh, less experienced radiation oncologist who says, I don't know what happened in the neck of the bladder. And ultimately it comes down to the tissue quality at the time of surgery. And we can tell, right? right. You've got a poorly vascularized tissue, not holding sutures, not a good idea to, to push and do an orthotopic diversion as opposed to any, someone who goes there and, and the prostate just comes off as if you know you haven't had any radiation there. So, so I would say it's it's, it's variable. Um, uh, overall, the complication rates may be slightly higher, but I think it's a very feasible operation. We should absolutely offer it to patients, and, and this should be, the, like you said, a you know uh, relationship back and forth uh, with our radiation colleagues working very closely to to optimize the patient's outcomes. Yeah, I, I would emphasize that as well. Sorry, not to interrupt, yeah. but I, I think it really is important to have a multidisciplinary team yeah. where you know you are comfortable with with your urologist, your urologist is comfortable with your radiation oncologist. Um, you know, there's a medical oncologist involved who's also, you know, um, coordinating therapy. Um, you know, timing and, and trust, like, within, within that group of uh, providers, I think is essential for this to be successful therapy. So since we have your expertise here, I know this is, we're talking about advanced bladder cancer, but let's just talk for a second about the role of radiation in patients with non-muscle invasive disease. Is there any role for that currently? Uh, radiation alone, um, probably not. Um, so you know, there's a landmark MRC trial uh, that randomized patients to. Um, so there were two groups: those who had uh, solitary tumors without CIS uh, got no further, further treatment after transurethrorosuction or or radiation therapy. And a second group um, that had either multifocal tumors or or CIS um, had intravesical therapy or radiation, uh, and um, that that trial showed no advantage at all to, to radiation therapy. Um, 
you know, that's the only real high-level prospective data uh, that looks at that question. There's retrospective data from Germany um, that does suggest chemo radiation may be effective with, you know, maybe 70, 80 percent, 70 to 80 percent relapse, free, uh, long-term relapse-free survival rates. Um, you know, recently the RTOG completed a trial, small, small phase two trial of uh, chemotherapy and radiation for for uh, non-muscle invasive disease, high-grade, um, high-grade non-muscle invasive disease. Uh, we these don't have results from it yet. These but are high grade T1, I presume? Yeah, T1. Um, yeah, T1. Yeah. Yeah, the MRC trial was T1 grade 3 tumors. Yeah. And then uh, so the R2G experience, I think, had some other inclusion criteria recurrence, you know, after prior, after, uh, prior BCG therapy and so forth. What about for the patient who undergoes an upfront cystectomy and has PT3 or PT4 disease or potentially nodal disease? Is there a role for radiation in that setting? Yeah, so the RGUG attempted to com uh, you know, complete a trial in that setting. Unfortunately, it closed early due to poor accrual. Um, uh, the, the only real level one data we have answering that question comes from an Egyptian trial. Um, and you know, in that trial, um, originally, so the standard of care in Egypt due to primarily squamous cell histology was to get adjuvant radiation. And the, random the randomization was you know, uh, with or without uh, sandwich chemotherapy before and after, uh, uh, after radiation therapy. Um, and certainly, you know, um, the phase three part of that trial, chemotherapy dramatically improves results. Um, you know, they tried to add on uh, in kind of a post hoc fashion a, a randomized uh, chemotherapy alone arm to that trial. Um, and, you know, that was reported in drama surgery a couple of years ago, um, suggesting that, uh, you know, uh, compared to adjuvant chemotherapy alone, uh, adjuvant radiation therapy um, did improve local control, uh, but it did not improve overall survival. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of qualms about kind of doing a post hoc. Uh, post-hoc add-on, you know, layering on a trial on top of a previously designed trial, so not sure how much to make of that results. Um, you know, and, you know, 50% of that, that cohort were squamous, although when they did a post-hoc subset analysis with just the urothelial carcinoma patients, they seemed to benefit just as much from, from adjuvant radiation therapy. Um, we do know from the SWOG experience um, that patients are at high risk after cystectomy for, for local regional relapse. Um, so, uh, you know, this is a lot of work done in, um, out of UPenn, um, but um, it seems like we, we can stratify patients. So patients with T2 disease, um, you know, seem to do fairly well. Local regional relapse rates are on the order of 10% or so. Um, those with T3 disease, resected with uh, uh, clear surgical margins and more than 10 lymph nodes dissected, um, also seem to do fairly well. Um, you know, about 20% of those patients relapse. Um, if you have T3 or greater disease and uh, less than 10, 10 lymph nodes resected or a positive surgical margin um, in, their, in, 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 their, uh, in, in their cohort, um, you know, the relapse rates were about 40%. Um, so the, the RTG really uh, tried to design a trial, you know, incorporating those, um, those intermediate and high-risk post-op patients. Um, again, you know, fortunately it closed due to poor accruals. Um, but I, I will still offer it to patients um, who, who meet criteria for that, who would have met criteria for that trial. Um, I do not radiate the cystectomy bed uh, if there was a negative surgical margin, um, but uh, I will treat, treat the pelvic lymph nodes to about 50 gray. So, Dr. Calvaresi, what about the role of adjuvant chemotherapy in patients following cystectomy? So, no neoadjuvant, they have T3, T4 disease, or nodal disease. Yeah, so um, anybody with adverse pathologic features, the, the guidelines really support using uh, adjuvant treatment, usually with a, a cisplatin-based chemotherapy regimen. Um, unfortunately, there's not a lot of data supporting this. Um, so, and unfortunately, the, the accrual rates for trials looking at this were, were really low. And so we don't have strong support uh, as to whether or not this really does improve overall um, outcomes. 
but we do know that it is in the guidelines as an option for absolutely. these patients. Absolutely, very strong. Uh, so we also know, unfortunately, that about 50% of patients, when you consider all comers following cystectomy, will have a relapse. The majority of that relapse will be metastatic, but 10 to 20% will occur uh, locally. So what are the uh, what are the regimens for patients who have metastatic disease, either de novo or following uh, primary treatment? Um, so failing cisplatin-based therapies? No. Nope. Uh, oh, no. I'm sorry. So yeah, so we're going to use a cisplatin-based therapy yes. in that setting. Absolutely. Um, if they're cisplatin ineligible, you can consider a, a carbo uh, regimen. Okay. So the two more more common um, cisplatin regimens that we use up front. Yep. So the gemcitabine and cisplatin, um, or an MBAC uh, or dose dense MBAC. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we were talking about before, um, considering the patients and their comorbidities. So are there things we need to watch out for and consider when? prescribing these medicines? Yeah, so patients who are potentially cisplatin ineligible would be patients who with um, poor renal function or poor performance status, uh, neuropathy, or hearing loss. Okay, and so has the landscape changed recently? Um, you know, are there other options for these patients? And t walk us through how we figure out what therapy patients with advanced or metastatic disease should get. Yeah, absolutely. So we have the approval of the five um, immune checkpoint inhibitors, which is really wonderful. Um, and so first we're going to see if the patient's cisplatin eligible. If they're cisplatin el eligible, then we give them cisplatin. Um, Otherwise, we could check their PDL or PD1 status for use of the immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, for patients who are cisplatin ineligible, you're going to go right to the, the to the checkpoint inhibitors. Okay. So uh, first, sort of branch point is cisplatin eligible or ineligible, and the things that we consider in that situation: performance status, yep. renal function, absolutely hearing loss, neuropathy, things like that. Okay. And so if our patient is cisplatin eligible and metastatic we send them for cisplatin therapy. You got it. Okay, cisplatin ineligible, what's the next step? So we would want to consider an immune checkpoint inhibitor. So In the, the first line? Um, yeah, absolutely. That's great, okay. Absolutely. So we have the key point study um, that shows uh, the use of Hembro in this patient population and um, an objective response rate of about 24%, um, which is great. That is great. So we have two important studies that look at um, immunotherapy in the first-line setting. So there's the Keynote uh, 052 study that you mentioned, and then Invigor, which is for atezolizumab right. in the first-line space. Um, and so 24% uh, response rate uh, was, was good, and we found out that it was pretty durable as well. Which very durable, very, very well tolerated, very few side effects. Um, most of the side effects that you're going to see in patients who are on um, uh, the IO therapies are any of the itises, so dermatitis, pneumonitis, um, hepatitis, thyroiditis, and based upon um, the grade of the um, adverse effect, you may or may not need to hold the therapy. So in a mild dermatitis, of course, you're not going to hold the treatment. Um, a grade three or higher, you're going to want to consider not giving them that treatment again. And when using these checkpoint inhibitors, can you tell us a little bit about how they how they work? Yeah, so um, we have the PD-1 inhibitor and the PD-L1, and so we're blocking the PD-1 and the PD-L1, and therefore releasing the T cells for activation. Great, and the T cells then go on to uh, be activated against the cancer. Exactly. So in these two trials, they did check for PD-L1 status. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, and the outcome uh, in patients who were a stronger expression of the PD-1, um, they actually had a much stronger response, so with the, with the mutational burden. 
So there are different tests out there to check for PDL1 status, which is is that a blood test or is that a tumor it's a tissue? Tumor test. Okay. It's a tumor test, yeah. Right. So they're able to analyze the tumor tissue and then um, give us a PDL1 status. Mm -hmm. And we know the patients who have um, higher expression of PDL1 are going to respond better. Yep. And so I believe the FDA approval for these two agents in the first line therapy is listed. For first line, it's only for patients who test positive. Although we know that. If I may, I just want to make a distinction sure. about uh, treatment versus adjuvant uh, therapy here because we're, we're talking about these agents that are approved for, for um, metastatic lesions and yet we don't know whether they're doing anything in the adjuvant setting. And so right. we have the Pem uh, Pembro trial, the ambassador trial, to try to answer that question. And we have the adjuvant in Tezo, which closed, and we're analyzing that data. So we're not really sure whether these will work in the adjuvant setting. And if you've received, if your point about getting adjuvant, if you didn't receive adjuvant uh, with cisplatin, um, but if you've received neoadjuvant cisplatin-based therapy and, and you have T3, T4, or nodal disease, uh, that's, I think, the, the difficulty uh, seeing the patient two, three months after, what now? What now you know, right? radiation is, a, is an option, but you've got nodal disease, so there may be systemic relapse. I think the numbers you quoted are for local regional failure. Um, the 20%, uh, 10%, 20% for T2, these are for a T3, T4 would be 40%, but in, in, in systemic relapse, it's actually even higher than that, you can have chest relapses. So we're actively accruing to, to Ambassador, the, the, um, uh, and we'll see what the Atezo shows in, in the adjuvant setting. I think these are the unanswered uh, questions. questions, yeah, for yeah. sure. You mentioned the five agents for um, second line therapy. So uh, talk about patients who have received cisplatin and then progress. So certainly a second line treatment, we want, to, we want to look at the IO therapies in that setting, absolutely. Okay, and do we need to do PDL one testing in that population? So it's not necessarily required because you're still going to see outcomes in patients with low expression, or, or you're likely to see. Um, but certainly you're going to see a better response in patients who are positive, um, but you want to offer it to patients with low expression as well. And then, unfortunately, some patients will progress even after the um, immune therapy. So are there any options available for those patients? Well, we have the very brand new approval of the um, uh, ertafitinib, um, which is the first targeted therapy. Um, it's an oral therapy. It's targeting the FGFR 2 and 3. Um, really good outcomes here, about a 40% overall response rate, very durable, well-tolerated. Um, most of the side effects here are um, you can see some dermatologic changes, some ocular changes, which you want to follow pretty closely, um, and hyperphosphatemia. So um, with the phosphate levels, if they're within normal range, you can actually titrate the dose up. That is exciting. So this is the first ever targeted therapy yeah. for advanced or metastatic uh, bladder cancer. But being that it's targeted, I, you know, the FGFR3 is the, is the uh, real question here. You know, how many, how many patients with metastatic disease have the FGFR3 mutation? We know in upper tract disease, they're enriched for it. We see them in anywhere from 30 to 60% in some studies, whereas in bladder is slightly less. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly in, in, in uh, uh, phase two studies of IRTA with metastatic bladder, we saw a good response there. And I, I think that, that is exciting that we, we, have, we have that. Um, I, along the same lines, we have a, another FGFR3 inhibitor coming for adjuvant therapy in upper tract disease, infragratinib. So that's a trial that's gonna be starting soon. Great. And are there any other therapies for patients who have progressed on immune therapy? Yeah, so there's um, uh, in, uh, infortimab, 
Yes. Um, so we're, this is an antibody drug uh, conjugate uh, targeting the Nectin-4. Um, also really well tolerated, great overall response rate, also close to about 40% um, with good durability. Great. And so I believe that's under investigation right now. Yeah, it's not yet approved. A lot, a lot more to come, but a lot of exciting. Uh... I think, I think, absolutely exciting. And when you see these patients back in clinic, you can't believe how good they good look. They look right? right. In the past, they were getting salvage chemotherapy regimens, which have 10% response rate, taxanes, and you know those kinds of drugs, and they really didn't look good. Most of them didn't respond. But you're seeing the IOs, you're seeing these new um, oral therapies that are really remarkable. So it, we're, we're, I think. May finally making progress in bladder where we didn't finally. have that. Yeah. So that reminds me, that brings me back to patients who are non metastatic, who are not candidates for cystectomy or for trimodal therapy. Uh, there's a trial that you're working on, and we're actually part of at Vanderbilt right now for the pretzel therapy. Yeah. Um, I think that there's something that's been needed in the space for so long, so I'm uh, encouraged and optimistic. But can you tell us a little bit about the Taurus trial? Sure. So the Taurus uh, is the name of the company that the device is called GemRIS. Uh, it's a, uh, like you said, a pretzel. This is not an edible pretzel. <laughs> it's a, it's a, um, essentially a, a plastic uh, drug-eluting uh, stent, if you will, that is placed inside the bladder through a catheter, very easily placed, and it eludes chemotherapy over a certain period of time. Uh, we ran the phase one trial along with some other centers, um, extremely well tolerated. This thing is, as opposed to stents, it's actually floating in the bladder and eluding the drug uh, in the phase one trial over a one week period, and uh, now in the phase two trial over three week periods, and you can have many cycles of this. So the idea that a drug can remain in the bladder for prolonged periods of time, as opposed to what we do, which is you know put it in for an hour, two hours with BCG and other intravascular therapies, this is also another exciting, there's so much mechanistic um, uh, 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 detail about the action and mechanism, mechanism of gemcitabine on the tumor that is not well understood and, and so much more than what we know, of course, the cytotoxic. Uh, but that's an exciting um, sort of avenue. So patients who are not eligible for cystectomy, currently there's a phase two and it's gonna move into a phase three trial uh, with combination therapy of this pretzel uh, the uh, GEMRIS uh, uh, device and perhaps other immune checkpoint inhibitors, radiation. So there's, there's additive things that we can do. I think we're entering this new era, but I'm very excited about this new drug delivery you know, mechanism that we hadn't really thought about before. It seems very patient friendly. Very patient friendly. I think in the phase one, uh, we didn't have any uh, major side effects or um, any uh, SAEs that required removal of the device. Again, very, very well tolerated. Uh, by the way, it has been also studied in, in, uh, in, in the overactive bladder population where they're putting anticholinergics in this uh, thing and it's eluded for it. And again, women are uh, reporting remarkable outcomes with, with uh, uh, anticholinergic agents as well. And is there also an um, investigation going on using the pretzel device in the neoadjuvant setting in combination with other therapies? Um, I think uh, it, it's in discussion, not currently. Uh, what we did was a uh, sort of a window of opportunity trial. With this, this was a phase one prior to cystectomy, and it's really a phase one. This is tolerability. However, in that trial, we did see some really interesting results where we had to take cystoscopic pictures of the tumor. Um, and uh, of course radiographic tumor, uh, radiographic images as well. And because we were looking at this every two weeks and as cystectomy we, we uh, got the final pathology, we did have some complete responders where we were actually looking at tumor prior. 
Um, so really interesting, intriguing uh, results. And this was just a four-week period. So I'm excited to see what happens when you um, treat the tumor for a longer period. Mm -hmm. and, and again, the technology is such that you can you can tailor it to deliver drug over longer periods of time. So I believe that phase two was, is which you're currently involved in, is that right? Uh, is a three-week um, right. uh, drug eluding for several, several cycles. But there's discussion about IO therapy and novel other therapies, combination therapies, where we can perhaps do more bladder preservation, you know, in patients who were not eligible for TMT uh, because of the chemo arm, they can't get any chemo and we don't want to do radiation alone, right? Can we do this plus radiation? So, and there's potentiating effects, of course, of gemcitabine with, with, with uh, radiation that, that, that's exciting. So let's finish up in the last few minutes talking about upper tract urothelial carcinoma. So again, let's go back to a 75-year-old, referred to you, high-grade, non-invasive upper tract disease. What are you gonna do in terms of workup and management for this patient? Yeah, so, so high-grade, non-invasive, um, very much, much more difficult, as you know, to diagnose non-invasive disease in the upper tract. Our, our instrumentation is limited, and there's only so much biopsy we can take. Uh, it's sort of the gestalt feeling of whether this is invasive or not. The general rule is, if it's high grade, if it's slightly larger tumor, then the chances of this being invasive is very high. Mm -hmm. You know, it's rare to have a high grade TA lesion in, in the upper tract. Uh, so if we find a slightly larger tumor, be it two, three centimeters, anything that's not manageable endoscopically, you really should be thinking of that as an invasive tumor and an opportunity to do neoadjuvant therapy. So that we do recommend neoadjuvant chemotherapy, same, same uh, as bladder, uh, cisplatin-based, either GEMSYS or <coughs> docents and back with some phase two and, and some, uh, 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 we're beginning to get data on phase threes of, of the efficacy of that approach. Uh, we haven't seen survival data yet, but uh, we're definitely seeing the downstaging that occurs very similar to bladder and, and, and use of neoadjuvant uh, therapy. So that's what we're doing. If it truly is a very small lesion that happens to be a high grade, that we presume it's a TA, strict vigilance. I mean, recurrence rates 80, 90%. It's extremely high. So you have to be careful with upper tract disease. It can, it can progress right under your nose. And, and so we're fairly uh, aggressive when it comes to high-grade disease in the upper tract. How are you doing your nephro-ureterectomy? Robotically. Okay. <laughs> and the distal cuff, are you formally coring it out? or I know this is so frustrating, such a point of uh, discussion among urologists, because no one has a good system for I know. And again, cuff. I think the principles of surgery again, and, and people do are pure roboticists and, and lap, and uh, I think again, minimize your spillage of urine during the case, whether you do it open, robotic, laparoscopic. And there have been some studies there that show that, you know, laparoscopic and robotic and pluck techniques will lead to higher local recurrence rates. Um, you know, let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's not leave the, the this, you know, intramural ureter behind. That, that was shown right. decades and decades ago that you shouldn't do that. So again, stick to the principles. Um, you know, I don't think coring it out from the inside you have to make an incision somewhere to, to take out the, the kidney. So I think the benefits of robotic surgery, laparoscopic surgery, is in doing the nephrectomy. I make a small incision, a fantasial incision, to take out the kidney and do my distal cuff. In a very obese patient, it is advantageous to do the whole thing probably laparoscopically. Again, minimize your spill. I do use chemotherapy inside the bladder at the time of surgery, in the beginning of surgery. I don't know how you do it. 
Uh, I do that as well. What do you use? So, good, great question. I used to use mitomycin, and now I use gemcitabine. It's a complete extrapolation, of course, but uh, uh, from from Ed Messing's data on the on the decrease in in, in, in uh, bladder recurrences in the immediate perioperative period. So I've switched to gem, mm -hmm. uh, but mitomycin is a, it's 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 that's where all the Basically, all the trials showed, no matter what you use, right, epirubicin, mitomycin, whatever you use, I think will decrease your recurrence rates in the bladder by about 10% or so. So whether you do it a day, pri a week prior, during the operation, or even a week after. When you take the catheter out. When you take the catheter out, I think any of those approaches are fine. Uh, I just find it, you know, practical to use, do it at the time of surgery, and then, of course, you know, wash out the bladder, make sure you're not spilling that stuff inside the uh, yeah. pelvis. Is there a role at all for immunotherapy in in neoadjuvant or otherwise? It's a great question. We don't know yet. Um, certainly there are trials that are ongoing right now, including the Hoosier trial, um, but we just don't know yet. Um, we, we would think that what we see in bladder, that it's probably going to be very beneficial, especially considering that most of the upper tract tumors have a higher t uh, mutational burden, so they may respond a little bit better. Um, but we'll have to see what the trials show. And so the consideration there is, again, neoadjuvant versus adjuvant. You have two kidneys to begin with. If you're going to give someone cisplatin therapy, they're more likely to be able to tolerate it and do well in the neoadjuvant space. Right. Once you take the kidney out, they may no longer be a candidate for uh, first-line cisplatin-based therapy. Absolutely. So what about, Dr. Wong, the role of radiation therapy for the management of upper tract disease? Yeah, uh, so um, I think there's, uh, are you talking about the adjuvant setting or the inoperable setting? Yes, in the yeah. adjuvant setting. Okay, sure. Um, be a short conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's no prospective data. <laughs> That's it, no. Um, yeah, so I think what you're alluding to is there, there was a recent uh, large retrospective multi-institutional experience uh, out of Korea, Japan, um, where, uh, you know, they, they basically did propensity score matched uh, analysis comparing those who did get adjuvant. They, they looked at a cohort of patients who they called T3B, so these are patients who had uh, invasion into perinephric uh, or uh, perirenal fat, um, and uh, who had no negative disease. Um, and then after resection, uh, the patients received a median dose of 46 gray and conventional fractionation to the tumor bed. Um, and uh, you know, it was a very small. So out of the 200, 220 patients, you know, only about 40 or so actually got adjuvant radiation. So it's a small cohort. And you know, when when, when you're doing propensity score matching with, with with these kinds of data sets, you always have to view that kind of data with with, with some you know some um, uh, some, some suspicion, uh, but what they did report were uh, you know, significant improvements um, uh, across all endpoints, um, you know, local control, distant metastasis control, cancer-specific survival uh, with adjuvant radiation therapy. Um, you know, surprisingly, they did not see a benefit, uh, so they also looked at the cohort of patients who received uh, chemotherapy, proactive chemotherapy. They did not see significant benefits in patients who, who received chemotherapy in their, in their experience. Um, you know, I think that I think the best data is is for systemic therapy from the PAUT trial, right? I think um, you know I think that's really um, you know that's level one data. Um, there isn't yet level one data to support radiation for upper tract upper tract disease, so um, I don't routinely do it. All right, so let's talk about some take home messages from our session today. Um, I think that. There have been a lot of exciting developments in muscle invasive and advanced urothelial carcinoma. We know for patients who are localized, we have great guidelines, AUA guidelines, NCCN guidelines to help us make our decisions. Trimodal therapy is in both sets of guidelines, so it's not, we can't forget about that as urologists. Um, it definitely has a role and the outcomes are, are favorable based on the data that we have available to us. Uh, radical cystectomy following trimodal therapy also at centers of excellence is a reasonable um, consideration. And there's been so much in the world of 
immunotherapy and it's really revolutionized the way that we're managing our bladder cancer patients. And fortunately, they're showing good efficacy with reasonable tolerability and durability and that's all very exciting in clinical trials, right? There's yeah, absolutely. That's what we need to answer the next set of questions, the timing, you know, what to do when something doesn't work. Uh, I think, yeah, we're entering a, a, a great next phase in bladder cancer management. I'm just happy that there's so much more attention to it than uh, has been in the past. So, Dr. Calvaresi, Dr. Danishman, Dr. Wong, thank you so much for today. Thank you. Uh, thank, thank you, you everyone, thank you. for joining us at AUA Live. Great, thank you. Thanks.